Good morning. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard already, there is some Ugandan chai in the building. Uh, just look for the pots that are not vac pots. There is a thermos on one side and a pitcher on the other. Uh, it was made with tea that came straight from Uganda, brought it on, on uh, eBay. Uh, just something a little special to help put us in the mood for Uganda here. Uh, my name is Seth Jones. I have a master's degree from Wheaton College in Intercultural Studies, uh, and I'm going to be teaching about James Hennington this morning. Some of you may know that all four of my grandparents were missionaries in Africa. My mom grew up in Morocco, and my dad grew up in Central Africa. They're both here today. I've always had a soft spot for Africa, and hopefully you are all aware that there is much in African history that will break your heart. Consequently, this has been a difficult journey for me. I had to read about a lot of pain and suffering. I feel just as called to tell this tale right now as I did a year ago. And it is Christ in me that gives me strength to research it and to share what I've learned. This is the collect for the Feast of St. James Hannington, which is celebrated every October 29th. If you've ever used the, the daily prayer app that so many of us do, and you come to October 29th, you will see his name mentioned. Let's read it together now. Precious in your sight, O Lord, is the death of your saints, whose faithful witness by your providence has its great reward. We give you thanks for your martyrs, James Hannington and his companions, who purchased with their blood a road into Uganda for the proclamation of the gospel. And we pray with them that we also may obtain the crown of righteousness, which is laid up for all who have the appearing of a Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. This is the James Hannington Memorial in Namangongo. Spoiler alert, this is where he and at least 46 others were speared to death, October 29, 1885. This is a story of great triumph, coming from great tragedy, set in the context of the scramble for Africa. It was a time when Africa was being carved up by Europe. You can read more about it in your handouts. It's a story of how Christ used imperfect people to bring the light of the gospel to a land ruled by a king with seemingly absolute power. And where polygamy, divination, and slavery were commonplace. It is a story that is still being written do not forget to pray for Uganda. I was reminded of this verse while researching Hannington. I show it first in the Uganda language because that is what James Hannington, Alexander McKay, and other missionaries lived and died for. That the Baganda might hear about Jesus in their own language. Jesus was speaking of his own death and resurrection, but it's also clear to me that it applies to all those who have given their lives to Christ. Jesus died to save us from our sins. From the very beginning, there have been believers who are willing to give everything for the sake of Christ, even to the point of giving up life itself. Some, like St. Stephen, are mentioned in the Bible. Some are in recent memory, like Nate Saint. Others have been ignored or forgotten in some parts of the world, like James Hannington. The call to martyrdom is a call all of us may have to face one day. Indeed, we are all called to die to self and live in Christ on a daily basis. Even if we live to see the next day. The tales of those who give their life to Christ humble and inspire us. It's easy to feel that one's life is insignificant and meaningless by comparison. 
especially if all you do is fix cars and have difficulty keeping daily offices. Such feelings have often been met with a desire to serve God in a new way on the mission field. It may sound strange that martyrdom would inspire people to go into the mission field, but we can found, find countless examples of people who have given up everything to bring the love of God to an unfamiliar country. My grandmother was so inspired upon hearing of Amy Carmichael's death. Hannington was another such individual. He was inspired to become a missionary when he'd heard the tale of two missionaries to Buganda, Lieutenant Smith and T. O'Neill, who were killed on Kewe Island in Lake Victoria in 1877. He was the son of Charles Smith Hannington and Elizabeth Clark Hannington. The spot on the map is Hurstpier Point, where he was born. He says of his birth, I was born on the 3rd of September, 1847. The only peculiar circumstance connected with my birth was the fact that my father was in Paris at the time. Can this have anything to do with my passionate love of traveling? Because none of my brothers seemed thus affected. This is his boyhood home. Charles was the son of Smith Hannington. So Smith was James's grandfather. He was the founder of Brighton's largest department store. Can you just imagine what your childhood would have been like if your grandfather founded Macy's? Hannington's was successful enough that Charles was able to buy St. George's house, this house, just before the birth of his son James. Smith died in 1855, leaving Charles and his family to run the business. This is an aerial shot of the Hannington estate today. You'll see over here, that's St. George's house. And then way over here is St. George's church, where he would later be pastor. That was actually on the family's property. I can't be sure exactly how much of this was here when he was a boy but I presume that a great deal of this was the family's estate. And that, that garden there would have been his backyard. From a young age, James loved to collect zoological specimens, cultural artifacts, and other curiosities. He loved adventure and especially sailing in rough weather. He loved to travel, and his father's business meant he was able to travel with his father to many European countries. He had a great many misadventures along the way, of course, such as in 1859, at the age of 12, he lost his left thumb while attempting to destroy a wasp nest using a homemade firecracker. <laughs> he called it a blue devil. He was schooled by a tutor on and off until the age 13, when he was sent to temple school. He had a hard transition to private school and soon found his previous homeschooling left him ill-prepared for the curriculum at temple school. I have a few quotes of that, from that time of transition, um, such as, I knew absolutely nothing, the result of private tutorage, and I was put into the fourth class, which was bottom to none. So much for private tutors and private schools. I believe that both systems are equally pernicious. <laughs> Finally, I was always very excitable and noisy, and was called Mad Jim. In fact, I was one day reported to the headmaster as verging on insanity and was severely punished. After I read that, I became convinced that, you know, between that and the other crazy thing he was, he was doing, he probably had ADHD. And I should know, because I also have ADD. He could be a handful in his school days. He lit a bonfire in his school dorm at Temple School. He pelted his German teacher with his rejected papers. He was once caned by his teacher more than a dozen times. The headmaster tried to look after him, and young James did possess some good, good qualities. It is said that he hated lies, he was sensitively conscientious, and trustworthy. Most importantly, all his life, he was said to be fearless. 
1862, at the age of 15, he left Temple School to work in the accounting department of his father's business in Brighton, where he remained, uh, shall we say, employed for the rest of, of five or six years. He is described as being ill-suited for the role. Most of this time appears to have been spent touring Europe with a private tutor instead of doing any accounting work. In March 1864, he received a commission in the British Army as a second lieutenant in the 1st Sussex Army Vol Artillery Volunteers, a sort of army reserve unit. He was promoted to captain by the end of 1865. However, much, most of his time appears to still be spent going on holiday, hunting, sailing, touring Europe, etc., rather than working as an accountant. Hannington finally expressed to his parents that he felt like he didn't fit in at Hannington's, that he didn't have any desire to be an entrepreneur. Because something had been stirring in James's heart. He writes, My heart, Lord, may I ever raise to thee in humble thanks and praise for keeping me throughout the day. Lord, guard and guide me while I'm here. And when to die my time has come, O oh, take me to thy heavenly home. He wrote that when he was in the First Sussex Artillery Volunteers. He would take communion for the first time in July following a rigorous observance of Lent. He took an interest in everything the church was doing and got to know many priests and bishops in the church. In October 1868, he left for Oxford where he attended college in St. Mary Hall. He seems he poured more effort into extracurricular activities such as rowing club than into his studies. As a result, the principal suggested that he instead study privately with the Reverend C. Scriven, rector of Martinhoe, where he would be away from distractions from his books. He returned to Oxford to pass his Smalls test on March 19, 1870, only to give up on the second day of test due to a particularly distracting organ grinder playing just outside the window. He spent the next term in residence at Oxford. He was at this time elected to the president, uh, be the president of the Red Club. June 12, 1873, he received his BA degree. He continued to struggle with his studies as he pursued his master's in ordination. He would at times doubt his calling to the priesthood, in no small part to his difficulty in passing required exams. He was eventually able to convince the uh, bishop to ordain him, but on the condition that he become a deacon for two years before taking an intermediary exam. He was ordained March 1st, 1874, and commenced his duty as curate of Trenchishoe and Martinhoe soon afterward. He had many adventures there and loved exploring the cliffs along the coast. Nearly falling to his death or drowning did nothing to discourage him. On July 30th, he met Colonel Simpson at his first missionary meeting. At this time, Hennington hadn't considered becoming a missionary. The colonel would prove to be quite influential at this time. Colonel Simpson gave him a copy of Grace and Truth by Dr. William Patton McKay, a Christian apologist, a sort of Victorian English Josh McDowell, if you will. The book is quite good and worth a read, as is the testimony of W.P. McKay. Hannington was particularly influenced by chapter four, Do You Feel Your Sins Forgiven? The chapter presents its arguments as a dialogue between McKay and someone who is unsure of their salvation. It convinced Hannington that it is far, far more important to know that our sins are forgiven than it is to feel we are forgiven. Sometime later, he would write of how he felt when he read McKay's words. I was in bed at the time, reading. I sprang out of bed and leaped about the room rejoicing and praising God that Jesus died for me. From that day to this, I have lived under the shadow of his wings in the assurance of faith that I am his and he is mine. He was a changed man and approached his ministry with renewed enthusiasm and purpose. 
He began a journey of dying to self and living in Christ, with an emphasis on preaching the gospel. Many sources even call this the moment of his conversion, because the change was so dramatic. November 3, 1875, he returned to Oxford for his master's degree. While there, he became critical of his classmates' obsession with perfectly executing liturgical rituals. And he became more sympathetic with evangelicalism. But he never abandoned Anglicanism. In June 1876, he went to Chichester to take his exams for priest orders and soon after became rector of St. George's Church on his family's property. The stables next door would become his mission room where he held Bible class for men, another for women, and a regular prayer meeting. It was here that another big change for James happened. January 1st, 1877. The new year breaks in upon me. How? How? Under a new epoch, I am engaged to be married. I, who have always been supposed and have supposed myself to be a confirmed bachelor, cross-crabbed, ill-conditioned. What a change in the appearance of everything of this world, and to make me cold and dead. Lord Jesus, grant that we may love thee each succeeding hour more abundantly. Amen. Amen. Her name was Blanche Hankin Turvin, the second daughter of Captain James Michael Hankin Turvin. Hannington had once thought, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 7 and 8, that it was better to be single and that marriage could be a distraction that would make ministry more difficult. Hannington had begun to see ways in which his ministry might be helped by being married. Blanche and her mother were regular attenders of St. George's, and he thought, the first time he saw her, that she was fit for the duties of a clergyman's wife well before he had given up his idea of being a bachelor. She was an excellent match for him, and they were quite happy. They were married February 10, 1877, and they had three children over the next four years. James Edward Meofim Hannington, Carolyn Scriven Hannington, and Paul Travers Hannington. Paul was one year old when James first left for Africa. So how did he decide to leave his wife and three small children for an unknown country to preach the gospel? While it was clear to him that he was needed at home, he was even more clear to him that it was going to be very hard, much harder anyway, to find people to go and do the work of Christ in some faraway land than in St. George's Church. He said in this, this in a sermon preached at the certain, uh, church of St. Margaret in Brighton, our little band, which is about to set forth, needs all your sympathy to encourage them. You may depend upon it that it requires some courage to leave home on an expedition of this sort. I speak from personal experience. When all men are against one, saying that one is, against, is, one is making a mistake, that he is other, utterly wrong, that he is running away from the work God has given him to do and is seeking other work for himself, no small courage is needed to go forth, but I should not dare to stand up before you if I believed that I were going out to find work for myself. I firmly believe that I have been sent forth by God. From the beginning, I have placed this matter in the hands of God. I dare not weigh my own motives or fathom my own heart, but I ask God to guide me by his Holy Spirit. I pray that if God will not go with me, he will not let me go. In 1875, he had been challenged by many people to learn what was being done at home and abroad to fulfill the Great Commission. He would heard about the deaths of Lieutenant Smith and Mr. O'Neill sometime early in 1878, the two Church Missionary Society missionaries who were martyred on Arkeway Island the previous year. In 1881, he began to attend meetings held by the Church Missionary Society, or CMS for short. At one CMS meeting, he heard the call for men to join their ranks. He heard God asking, who will go? And Hannington said in his heart, Lord, send me. Initially, he only offered a service to the CMS as a missionary pro tem, or for the time being, because of his marriage and other responsibilities. Still, he was aware of the danger. On the 22nd, he made out his will. 
On the 23rd, he stated that he agrees to serve for no more than five years on the condition that his place at St. George's be continuously supplied. But he also asked that they not ask him to go unless the need was urgent. And of course it was. This new expedition was to set out with six men. The Reverend R.P. Ash, Reverend J. Blackburn, Cyril Gordon, W.J. Edwards, Mr. C. Wise, and of course, James Hannington. The plan was to travel the established southern route that Alexander McKay, C.T. Wilson, Lieutenant Smith, and others had traveled. It's the same road trod by Stanley and Livingston. Yes, the same Livingston you've probably presumed of. The party set sail from Gravesend, a port in Kent, England, near the mouth of the River Thames, for Zanzibar, May 17, 1882, aboard this ship, the RMS Ketta. This is a map that I found at the back of James Hannington, First Bishop of East Equatorial Africa, by E.C. Dawson. I've colorized it and approximated modern national borders, so you can figure out where you are. You can see Nairobi and other modern capitals. In green is the route of his second journey, but right now we're going to be following the route of his first journey here. Their first camp was in Dumi, where they first tasted from an African well. Hannington writes, you might cut the water with a knife. An English cow or an Irish sow would have turned from it. However, it boiled well and added body to our tea. It was a taste of many hardships to come. Just a few days later, Hannington was dropped in a river by his porters and fell terribly ill soon after. Hostile natives, wild animals, and tropical diseases plagued them the entire journey, with the only respites being the few established mission stations on the route. On the way to Mpwapwa, Hannington fell into a 10-foot deep deadfall trap set for game. Thankfully, this one had not been outfitted with spears at the bottom, as so many were. Hannington took the time to explore and collect specimens wherever his failing health would permit. For his trouble, he was swarmed with and badly bitten by an enormous caravan of black ants. He also encountered a red castor bean plant, known as Ricinus communis, and made the mistake of touching the bright red hairy seed pods while attempting to collect a specimen. This beautiful plant contains ricin, which is a highly toxic substance that can cause severe pain, madness, or death. The hairs are sharp and expose the victim to enough ricin to cause a great deal of suffering. At Pero, on the frontier of Ugogo, which is probably somewhere, whoop, somewhere down here, they were forced to drink from a well full of rotten dead rats and toads with the most foul stench imaginable because there was no other water to drink. By the next Sunday, August 6, Hennington had fallen ill once again, but resolved to keep walking, and it wasn't before long that his fever reached 110, and he was seized with violent rigors and alarming fainting fits. The hospital donkey carried him while he recovered. The next camp was afflicted with the pungent smell of rotting animal carcasses. Hannington's condition again took a turn for the worse with high fever and dehydration. Still, he managed to keep in good spirits and write in his journal of some humorous interaction with the natives. As he was sick much of the time, it was decided to have a team of porters carry him in a hammock for the next attempt to reach the lake. On October 16th, Hannington writes, If I had good health, I should be too happy. What wonderful mercy surrounds us. Truly underneath are the everlasting arms. Slowly his health returned, and by the 6th of November, he was back on his feet again. Two days later, the party reached Masalala, just at the start of the rainy season. That's somewhere in there. They were forced to wait until the rainy season ended, while they built shelters and prepared to wait there for months. They faced swarms of mosquitoes, and ants, and many lions. Stokes prepared a return caravan back to Zanzibar. 
Some porters would remain with Hannington and the others. Hannington's fever continued to come and go, but his spirit was indomitable. On January 2nd, they attempted to cross the lake in leaky canoes to a land ruled by a chief named Ramwa. They landed on January 9th, but the chief wouldn't let them continue to Uganda. He demanded guns and gunpowder, something that the CMS was not willing to give. Also, unfortunately, soon after arriving at Ramwa's, uh, his health took a serious turn for the worse. On February 9th, he began the long journey back to England, all the way back down that same road. He reached Sidani, right here, on May 9th, 1883. He was so sick he nearly died on the way. And it didn't help that his porters dropped him a few more times. It took another month for him to make it back to England from there. In England, while he'd recovered from fever, Hannington had been following the exploits of the explorer Joseph Thompson, who had been sent by the Royal Geographical Society to find the shortest route to the lake. This is the path that his expedition took. You can read about it in his book, Through Maasai Land. He proved that you could go through Maasai country and reach Lake Victoria. Up till then, the Maasai were so feared this was thought impossible. On October 21st, 1884, Hannington wrote in his journal, interview with Thompson of RGS. I liked him very much. November 3rd, two days before Hannington left England, Thompson presented his account of the expedition to the Royal Geographical Society. The following addendum is found in the Royal Geographical Society minutes. The Right Reverend Bishop Hannington wished to pay his admiration for the wonderful journey he had performed. It's important to note that Thompson never actually reached Buganda. He went as far as Kavirondo and turned back because the Waganda or the Wasoga were at war with the people of the Kavirondo. While Hannington was still in England, Thompson had been asked to attend a CMS meeting to discuss the feasibility of using the northern route. He wrote this note in later editions of the book Through Maasai Land. It was on page 295 to 296 of the ebook that I found on Google Books. In short, Thompson believed that the northern route to Uganda was far too dangerous and claimed that Hannington ignored his warnings and even discouraged the CMS from consulting him when Hannington proposed a northern route to Uganda in 1885. The CMS were also considering appointing a bishop over the region to help shepherd and organize the young and growing church. After much deliberation and due to Hannington's rapid recovery, he was not only cleared to return to Africa, but consecrated bishop on June 24, 1884. He would be bishop over what is now Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda. It was planned that he and his family would move to Mombasa, which is right here. But his wife had become pregnant with their fourth child named Mary. This delayed his departure for Africa somewhat and also meant that the family would stay in England while he went to Africa and got everything ready for them. November 5th, 1884, he set sail for Africa for the last time. After some stops in the Holy Land and in Cairo, even spending Christmas in Bethlehem, he reached Mombasa January 24th, 1885. Hannington first settled into his role as bishop in Freretown, which was a settlement for freed slaves established by the Church Missionary Society, which served as CMS headquarters for East Africa. It was right next door to Mombasa. As the first bishop, job number one was figuring out what needed to be done. Among other things, that meant building a new church and getting to know everyone. He was well liked by all the missionaries in his charge. And he sought to raise up leaders in the church from the local tribes and from ex-slaves. The hardships he'd encountered inland was never far from his mind and it influenced many of his decisions and opinions. 
He was hopeful that one day there would be a better way to get to Uganda. But for example, he opposed the idea of young women of childbearing age to accompany their husbands into the interior in the south over concerns of the dangers to health and other things. But he was all for women getting on the mission field who were a bit older in Town and maybe one day in Uganda once they figured out a better way to get there. In March, he set out on a journey to a distant mission station at Taita, some 200 miles inland. I couldn't quite locate exactly where that is, but it's probably somewhere up here along the green route. Along the way, he encountered several Swahili slave merchants who were in fear of the sight of a white British thinking that he was there to arrest them. They simply left their merchandise and fled. Hennington helped send these poor souls back to Frerertown, though many were in such bad health by the time Hennington found them that they unfortunately didn't survive the journey to freedom. Hennington evaluated possible mission station routes along the way. He climbed Kilimanjaro up here. and proposed a station be set up nearby. As usual, he collected specimens and made sketches of what he saw. What was most important to Hannington was that unlike his previous adventure in Africa, this time the climate was more temperate, more like England. He didn't get sick, and if anyone with him did get sick, there was always a speedy recovery. In primary, his primary concern was the fierce Maasai warriors who lived in this country. It was said in Zanzibar that there was no return from Maasai land, but Hannington found the natives to be quite friendly, and there were ways to negotiate with them. I should note here that he once faced down a Maasai warrior at spear point. He simply pushed the tip of the spear aside and said, do you really want to kill a white man? Again, he was fearless. He was back in Frerotown sometime mid to late June with his recent trek in mind. He set his thoughts again on Buganda. It occurred to him that since the northern route was easy and the southern route brought death, disease, and great tribulation, that he should attempt to reach Buganda by another route. At some point, Hennington decided that the potential dangers of a northern route were far less than the, those of the southern route. Hannington's biographer E.C. Dawson says that Hannington was unaware of any danger and that he did his due diligence in assessing the danger and feasibility. He set out from Rabai near Mombasa, Thursday, July 23rd, with 200 men, including one William Henry Jones, an ex-slave, set free in 1847 and now an ordained clergyman. You have to remember that back then, this was before railroads had made their way between Mombasa and Uganda. This is before cars, this is before airplanes. There were sitsi flies that would kill livestock and pack animals. The only way to get to Buganda was with sheer manpower. The expedition had fewer provisions with them on the journey but sustained themselves off of wild game. They managed to reach in jumps by September 22nd. Hannington managed to bring down an elephant and feed everybody. As before, it was relatively easy going compared to the southern route. Within two weeks, they were in Kwasundu. On October 12th, 1885, Hannington picked 50 men to go with him the rest of the way into Buganda, leaving Mr. Jones in charge of the rest of the expedition. Jones would wait for word from Hannington at Kwasundu. He was by all accounts unaware of the trouble brewing in Bikanda at the time. While Hannington was recovering in England, events began to unfold in East Africa that would drastically change everything. Matessa died October 9th, 1884. Matessa was the one who invited missionaries from England to come to Buganda and teach about farming and many practical matters and even 
if they so desired about Christ. Mitesa was succeeded by Mwanga II of Buganda on October 18, 1884, at the age of 16 or possibly 18. Succession was traditionally a process that took five months of mourning, and it used to involve a great deal of human sacrifice. This five-month period was a time when the new Kabaka was hidden away, chiefs prepared for war, and it was a time of anarchy. Mwanga's father, Mutasa, had managed to skillfully hold together several factions and also reassured, reasserted the dominance of the kingship over the chiefs and nobles by, gradually shorting, by greatly shorting the length of time to little over a week. Mwanga was expected to show very quickly that he was a strong leader, and that meant executions. <clears throat> Mutasa had requested Christian missionaries to come and teach his people at the king's expense. Mwanga II, however, was suspicious of foreign missionaries due in part to the German colonial efforts in modern-day Tanzania, then called German East Africa, as well as a prophecy that Buganda would one day fall to an invasion from the, easy, uh, from the east through neighboring Basoga. You can see here the geography of, you have in yellow the borders of modern-day Uganda but it incorporates a number of subnational kingdoms. You have the Kingdom of Busoga, the Kingdom of Uganda, the Kingdom of Binyoro, Toro, and Kole. Today, all of these kingdoms have a king, and they, all of these kings swear loyalty to a president. A little bit unusual on the world stage. January 31st, 1885 saw the beginning of Mwanga's persecution of the Bugandan church, with the execution and by dismemberment and burning of three Anglican page boys working, who worked closely with missionary Alexander McKay. By July, the Catholic missionaries, for reasons of security, had abandoned the Ugandan mission and relocated temporarily to the southern end of Lake Victoria. In the absence of the missionaries, Joseph Mukasa became leader of the Catholic Church in Uganda. He was Mwanga's prime minister of Kat or uh, Katikiro. He would also become one of the first of the Catholic martyrs. McKay received word that Hannington was to attempt to enter Basoga from the east and wrote to Zanzibar warning Hannington to go by the southern route. But it arrived after Hannington had already left. Some sources indicate that he sent someone to go find Hannington and warn him, but that his messenger was unable to reach him in time. It may not have mattered anyway. Remember, he was fearless. Before he joined the CMS, he once entered a house stricken with smallpox to deliver milk to a sick child, ignoring all warnings and even the orders of a health official to stay out. On October 25th, one of Mwanga's pages reported that a tall white Englishman who was missing a thumb had entered Basoga and was advancing towards Buganda. Mwanga held a council and it was decided that the stranger should be put to death. Mwanga was hesitant at first and nearly insisted that he merely be turned back. However, for the sake of plundering Hannington's small detachment, it was decided that he be put to death. Hennington had been captured and dragged into captivity some four days prior. He'd reached the shores of the lake on the 11th and continued west along the coast and now was being held captive by the king of Busoga until word came from Mwanga. Miraculously, his journal from this time survives. He was not treated well and developed a fever, yet he remained convinced that Mwanga would order that he be set free. His last entry is for October 29, 1885. I can hear no news, but was held up by Psalm 30, which came with great power. A hyena howled near me last night, smelling a sick man, but I hope it is not to have me yet. The previous day, there had been much drumming and shouting from the natives. When Hannington and his men asked why, they were told that Mwanga had ordered that Hennington and his men 
be released and allowed to continue to Buganda. The next day, he and his men were attacked by Wasoga warriors who speared to death 46 of Hannington's companions. Hannington's last words before he was executed were reportedly, tell the king that I die for Uganda. I have bought this road with my life. Only four of Hannington's caravan of 50 were allowed to live because they'd agreed to open the locked cases on the caravan's possession. November 8th, word reached Mr. Jones's caravan of Hannington's death, and they began the sad march back to Ferrotown. Within a year, at least 44 more had been brutally executed, many times protesting Hannington's death, including Joseph Mukasa. Some 32 of which were simultaneously burned to death on June 23, 1886, for refusing to renounce their faith. June 23rd is now Martyrs Day in Uganda, a national holiday. The exact number of Christians sold into slavery, castrated, or tortured and killed at this time is not known. Reverend Ash reported that it was over 200. We only know for certain the names of 22 Catholics because they went through a, a process of being beatified and made saints in the Catholic Church. So there was an inquiry about that. We know it with a considerable probability the names of 23 Anglicans. But John Falpel and others say that in an estimate of around 100 wouldn't be far off the mark. It's hard to know how big the church was at this time. Dawson puts the Anglican church at 80. In a book that I read on Simeon Lordell, puts the Catholic church at around 120. Whatever the numbers really were, only heaven knows. The news shocked England. In an 1888, the Crown backed a rebellion led by Christian and Muslim converts and successfully overthrew Wanga II. This was the beginning of a series of wars that pitted Protestants against Catholics and Christians against Muslims. Two more Kabakas would come and go by 1889 when Mwanga led a rebellion to retake his throne. He agreed to hand over some national sovereignty to the British East Africa Company in exchange for British support. Mwanga then rebelled against the British to try and gain more independence, but failed. Uganda became a British protectorate in 1894. Mwanga was exiled, baptized into the Anglican Church, and died in 1903. While it's true that Hannington's death was a catalyst for British colonial rule, it's also true that it was a catalyst for church growth and mission. It's said that as many as 50 joined the Church Missionary Society upon hearing of Hannington's death. For over a hundred years now, his story and the story of the martyrs that died during that time has inspired people to come to Christ and live for Jesus. His shrine is visited by pilgrims to this day. And a shrine has been built at Namugongo to commemorate the many other Ugandans who died for their faith in Jesus. I'd like to read you an excerpt from the Anglican Church of Uganda's website. These early Christians were martyred at Namagongo. Their martyrdom produced a result entirely opposite of Mwanga's intentions. The example of these martyrs who walked to their death singing hymns and praying for their enemies so inspired many of the bystanders that they began to seek instruction from the remaining Christians. Within a few years, the original handful of converts had multiplied many times and spread far beyond the court. The martyrs had left an indelible impression that Christianity was truly African, not simply a white man's religion. Most of the missionary work was carried out by Africans rather than by white missionaries, and Christianity spread steadily. Uganda now has the largest percentage of professed Christians of any nation in Africa. Today, the church in Uganda is strong and vibrant. As recently as 2002, there were almost 9 million Anglicans and an estimated 13.6 million Catholics 
in Uganda. While James Hannington is largely forgotten or unknown in America, his life, his message, and his sacrifice will always be remembered in Uganda. In all, 84% of the country's population profess to be Christian. And now it's question time. If Christ came knocking on your door tonight and asked you to go preach the gospel to a people who didn't speak your language in some faraway country, knowing that you might never return, could you? Will you die to self and live for Christ every day? If someone threatened to kill you unless you renounced Jesus, would you deny Christ? Any questions? Yes. Yes. I remember uh, Bishop Festa coming to our church in New York when I was there. Uh, how, how does that period of time connect with uh, the time that you just described? Well, it's interesting that you should mention that because that actually occurred uh, roughly around the 100th anniversary of the Ugandan church. And uh, there is a man from that time who's now been included as one of the Ugandan martyrs. His name is Janani Luwum. And he, he spoke truth to power. He was selected by a group of other believers and Muslims too to go tell Idi Amin that his persecution was wrong and that he needed to stop the killing. And for that, he was murdered. Officially, it was a car crash, but everyone, everyone knows it was really Idi Amin because when they examined the body, there was a gunshot wound to his head. Yes. So, two, uh, two things. First of all, am I correct that this is some Ugandan coffee that's back here on That's the Ugandan chai. It's tea. Chai, yes. I, just, I want to point that out. There's some left if people want to get some as they exit. So, my question is a little bit of a thought experiment. Um, there are many things that we know about African culture today that were not known back then. And, um, you know, people back then might have spoken of Africans as savages, but there's yes. a lot of things we know about um, complex culture and, and wonderful um, community life. And I'm wondering, just as a thought experiment, do you think that if missionaries like Hannington had approached the communities in a different way, that this could have gone down differently? Or well, was this kind of bound to happen? Considering the, the violence with which the king of Buganda ruled over his people, that's concerning. Um, if Hannington had probably been more aware of that, things may have gone down differently. But given the fact that the, uh, the scramble for Africa was already happening, the colonialism probably still would have occurred. It may have taken a bit longer. Um, I can't really say for sure. But the scramble of Africa began a bit earlier when King Leopold II declared um, Belgian Congo to be his personal property and all the people in it and he began exploiting them and then from that the rest of the European powers wanted a peace too and they were all scrambling for pieces here and there. Um, Cecil Rhodes even wanted there to be a railroad from Cairo to uh, Cape Town in, in South Africa and encouraged the British to take over as much territory as possible to fulfill that goal. Um, Uganda was certainly along that route and it may have fallen to the British or the Germans or even the French at some point. Um, missiologically, I think it turned out okay in the end. Um, it, it, some of my research indicates that they believed not only in sort of a, uh, multiple gods, but originally they believed in one god named Katonga. And there's a lot of similarities between their creation story and the story of Adam and Eve and all that, but they'd rejected Katonga in favor of other gods. And that's when some of this, pol um, this polygamy and the other things started coming in. It may also be one of the reasons why they were so receptive to Christianity in addition to the martyrdom. Um, yeah. 
Yes. Yes, I believe so, yeah. Uh, but it, it seems like history repeating itself in yes. modern day uh, actions of Wanda. Yes. And that every time the people wind up suffering the most. Uh, so those, those tribal factions that were there before the missionaries came, what, what unified them? Well, in the case of Mwanga, it was just by sheer terror and power. You know, there were different, it was different situations everywhere. There were, um, in, in Kenya, for example, they were a bit more divided. You had a bunch of nomadic tribes. They would, they would occasionally war, but they weren't really united. I mean, Africa, you have to remember, is a very large continent that's full of a diverse group of people, and they all have different histories, et cetera. Um, but you're right, there are echoes of, of some of these themes. Um, Mwanga, Idi Amin, very, very similar. Um, my dad pointed out that some have even said that the brutality that you see in Mwanga and traditionally in the role of the Kabaka to enforce his rule may have been one reason why Idi Amin thought it was okay to do what he did. Um, and then also under Idi Amin, there was a lot of deportations of Asians. Um, there were Indians that were brought in to build the railroad, he kicked them out, and he he kicked out may have kicked out some white people. Um, there was a similar thing happening in um, Zimbabwe not too long ago, where white farmers had their land taken away from them and given to black people. The same thing is now happening in South Africa. And then you ha you have some bright spots where that doesn't happen, like in Kenya, where you have. Can, you have a, a, a man um, named Kenyatta, I think, who uh, he actually had a meeting with these white farmers and said, don't worry, I'm not going to kick you out. We need you. We need to take a route of forgiveness. We will forgive the past, but you need to be willing to work with us. Unfortunately, that's not the case all the time. And... Uganda is just now rebuilding itself after, um, after I mean. Seth, um, a phrase that you repeated several times was that for each of you, you made an application at the end in terms of being willing to die as martyrs would be willing. But you said something that really caught my attention, which was to die every day and to live for Christ. Can you add to that how, what that means to you? I'm struggling with it. I work on cars for a living. And to do that, I'm faced with a lot of really tough situations. Cars come in broken, and they leave broken. And there's nothing I can do about it. I work with somebody who doesn't read, someone who doesn't speak English. Two of them can't even drive, which puts a lot of pressure on me to babysit them and make sure that things go OK. I wrestle with, with that a lot. Part of me wants them all to just go away and get someone competent, but the love of Christ compels me to help them. Like anyone else, I falter on a daily basis. I'm, I'm really not the best Christian on the planet, which is one of the reasons why it was really hard for me to be confronted with this. Part of me really wishes I could be out there somewhere on the field, but circumstances are prohibiting that. <laughs> 